organized outline for this conversation. That's right. So essentially, like one of the things that we wanted to do when we started this, because so Riddles in the Dark began as a way of guessing what the Hobbit film was going to do. It started when the Hobbit films were about to come out. So in the year prior to the release of the first Hobbit film, we were walking through and talking about what are the challenges for adaptation? Like, yeah. you know, what needs to happen? What, what do we hope to see? Uh, how do we think they're going to, uh, you know, address some of these things which we think are going to be really interesting or difficult to do uh, in adapting? And then we even had this whole, like, scoring system. So we actually had a, had a riddle. We had, a, you know, a question which we had to come down and, and give an answer to. You know, here's what we think is going to happen. Yes. Uh, each, uh, each of our episodes. And then we had scoring when the film came out to see, like, how many of us, you know, what, 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 how we did. and how which, we, which turned out to be harder than you would expect. Yeah. It was like, exactly. There was many questions where we're like, uh, not really sure. Like, we, we learned how to formulate questions that were likely to be answered by the actual That's right. Yeah, the first one, we, we, got, we had a lot of, uh, so none of the above, I guess. Yeah. That's really kind of the answer to that. Um, but this is also, I mean, one of the fun things that came from this was, like, a set of very idiosyncratic reactions as a viewer when I first saw the first Hobbit films, because I was completely focused from a Riddles in the Dark perspective. So I'll never forget when... Yeah. Uh, when when Azog holds up the severed head of Thror, right? And I stood up and cheered because I had called that. Like, we, we debated the question, like, will the decapitated head of Thror appear on screen? And I was like, yeah, it totally will. So he holds up the head and, and, and I'm like, yes! Everyone around me is like, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> anyway, so it was different. It was Azog different. fans represent, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, so, yeah, so that, the core of it was the prediction game, but but really the, the meat or substance of the podcast, or the, the most satisfying part, was the, like, talking through, in, in speculating about the questions, it was talking through, like, the challenges of adaptation. And, and like, that was so, that, that was sort of the thing where, like, well, we'd like to kind of keep doing this. It's yeah. really... By season three, we had had these, we had these, like, diversion, diverting threads, right? Yeah. Where first it was just like, okay, how do we think we're going to do this one? By the season three, we're like, okay, we now have the, here's what we think would be great, and here's what we think Peter Jackson's actually going to do. <laughs> yeah. So, like, there was this, like, you know, yeah. divergence between those paths. So, in the end, one way of thinking about film film is that we just fired Peter Jackson. Yes. Basically, we're like, okay, you can't be trusted to enact these awesome ideas that we're coming up with. We have no illusions that this is what you're actually going to do. But darn it, we want to keep talking about how we would do this. And yeah. so, so we decided to go to territory that we knew was safe. Nothing was on the horizon. But we were like, okay, let's talk about the Silmarillion, which nobody can adapt. So that, therefore, we know not only will we be untrammeled by the restrictions of reality as far as film production is concerned, we will also be untainted by anybody else's screen That's adaptation right, yeah, because yeah. it can happen. Yes. So, uh, so we started talking through the Silmarillion from, from the beginning. You know, the goal was to do from Ino Indole through, well, basically, we're kind of now, it's like the entire story. So we're basically going from the Ino Indole through Sam's departure on the boat. Yeah. Basically, that's, that's going to be the final episode of the final season. Uh, it'll, it'll, be, it'll, it'll be a while uh, that this is going on. And it's funny because Riddles in the Dark seemed like such a huge project when we started it. And we were like, 
okay, are we really going to be able to commit to doing this podcast for three solid years, you know, while these films are coming out? And now we've done three years of film film, and yeah. it's like the first 10% of our content. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> where have we even begun? Um, but it really has been... It really has been illuminating, not only just in, it's not just fun thinking in terms of like, in a sort of a fan way, right, of like, what would it look like? Wouldn't it be cool if you like take your favorite stories from the Silmarillion and think about what that would look like and, and kind of, uh, you know, sort of live in that imaginative space, but really in the sort of the opportunities for interpretation, there are so many things about the Silmarillion story that I have um, and not only the Silmarillion story, but of Tolkien's world, that thinking through in this kind of systematic way has really compelled me to confront things that I'd never ever confronted before. You know, and um, it's it's just it's a it's been a really it's it's an angle at sort of discussing and 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 analyzing the text that I never would have thought of five years ago. You know, but um, is immensely rewarding and I've, I've learned so much about the Silmarillion so far. Um, for those of you who, uh, who don't uh, follow the series, let me explain the parameters of what we've done. Just I won't go through all the details of all the decisions we've made, but uh, just so that if you have questions, you want to talk about things, you can know what are the things we've discussed and can talk in detail about the things we've thought through and what's the stuff we haven't gotten to yet. So I, so I want to I I kind of lay that out. Um, we've done three seasons. The arc of the first season, the first season is primarily the story of the Valar. So it starts with the Aino Indole and goes through the chaining of Melkor. Okay, and the sort of the pivotal moment in the middle of the season is the destruction of the lamps, uh, which we played as the sort of well, I'll talk, we can talk about that later. Uh, one of the, you know, thinking about what I was talking about earlier today with faithfulness and things, a bunch of very significant changes we've yes. made. That would be a really, a really fun thing for us to discuss. Or yes. What are some of the biggest ways in which we decided to leave the text behind and why did we decide that? Um, anyway, so that's season one, was the story of the Valar. Um, and uh, the, uh, still my favorite episode title that we've come up with is the, is the season uh, the season finale of, of season one, uh, which is when the Valar go and they attack uh, Utamno and uh, and take him and when the, the title of that uh, of that uh, episode is the war to begin all wars, mm-hmm. uh, which I was like that's still yeah, the best title we've come good, up with. Pretty good naming. Yeah. Um, anyway, so then the second season follows primarily the story of the elves, especially the Noldor. Begin the uh, episode one is the awakening of the elves in, in Quivienna, which we kind of work and sort of tease a little bit at the end of the first season, but uh, Quivienna in, in episode one through the darkening of Valinor mm-hmm. at the end uh, of the, of the, and that's chronologically one of the, I mean, of course, who even knows how much time passed in season one, uh, right? But uh, th- there's, there's an uh, accelerated timeline in season two, which was challenging. But the first half of the season is primarily the decisions of the elves and their journeys across Middle-earth. Everybody who's going to get to Valinor gets there by the middle of the season. And so the, the sort of the turning point at the middle of, the, of season two is the, the parole of Melkor, right? His release from, uh, from, from Mandos and, and being put into 
general population slash house arrest in Valinor. And, uh, and then, of course, the second half of the season focuses on Fanor and the unrest of the Noldor and Melkor's interactions with them, leading up, of course, to the darkening of Valinor, uh, which, is the, which is the final episode of the death of Finway and uh, the destruction of the trees at the end of season two. <clears throat> season three, which we just finished recently, uh, <clears throat> is, the, is the, the return to Beleriand. So uh, the first episode is Fanor's speech in Tyrion, recruiting everybody to come to Middle-earth and reclaim the Silmarils. Episode two is the Kinslaying, right? And then uh, we go up through the rising of the sun. So the, 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 the final episode has the, the capture of Mithros and him being stapled to the cliffside. Uh, and the arrival of Fingolfin uh, on the shores of Beleriand and the rising of the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sort of in the middle, the, the kind of turning point in the middle of, of season three is the burning of the ships, uh, the arrival of the Noldor and the burning of the ships. Um, we do, of course, we do a lot with um, the Sindar as well, uh, with Fingol and the Sindar, the, the, the arrival of the green elves and the, the, uh, the battle with the orcs, which leads to the... Uh, large-scale destruction of most of the Green Elves and the death of Denethor, their leader, is uh, a major feature in the first half of, the, of season three. So that's what we've done so far. Season four, what the episode you missed, Dave, was we're trying to figure <laughs> out the... We're still trying to decide the scope of season four. Um, originally, we had very casually said, well, we'll go from... Um, you know, from the you know right, right right after that you know from the rescue of Mithros and the establishment of the kingdoms uh, in Beleriand up through the Dagor Bragalak, the Battle of Sudden Flame and the the breaking of the siege. So we'll do that like establishment of kingdoms and the siege of Angband stuff uh, in season four. But we've had a revolt essentially, <laughs> I think I would say, from our. Uh, supporting cast that one of the things that's been we was our sort of our vision for some film from the beginning is that it not just be a podcast us getting together and talking you know every couple of weeks but it really be a community effort and we have uh, a very devoted group of people who have been very heavily involved from the beginning in helping to plan things and they uh, they, they do full script outlines for each episode they write and they do we have people who've Costume design, costume design and, and, and character uh, visualization. There's a lot of a lot of work on like what should the Valar look like. Yeah, map making and get, like lots and lots of uh, scores. Uh, scores. A musician who's composed uh, themes and scores for most of the season so far. Yeah. Um, really cool stuff because he's you know he so he came up with like the, these core musical themes for each one of the Valar in season one was like, what do you know, see, and we have like, this is the Manway theme, this is the Olmo theme, which of course can then be taken and adapted in other ways. Like then he, he came up with a, like, with a theme, like a fall theme, like for, you know, the theme that plays like while people are falling or experiencing temptation, right, which may lead to their fall. Uh, and, uh, uh, and like, you know, uh, you know, another one about like making and glory and beauty and things like that. So, and the way that he's now sort of combining these, right? So there was the, like the original Myron, the Myron, of course, Sauron's original name before he, you know, uh, 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 you know, got a red lightsaber. So he, uh, like, with the original Myron theme, right, and then, like, the Myron theme gets combined with the fall theme, right, which, like, uh, uh, combines to form the Sauron theme. And Anyway, um, so, yeah, we've this whole community who are doing all this really cool creative work, and they're the ones who revolted. They were like, no, there is too much. We cannot do that in one season. So they've 
I won't, insisted would be harsh. Uh, threatened would not be quite right. But they really want us to split our original concept of scene, season four into two seasons. <laughs> All right. They, they decided that the chapter of Beleriand and its realms was too rich in narrative content for yeah, one right. season alone. Yes, yes. So we need, to, a season to we need two seasons for of Beleriand <laughs> and its realms, yeah. Um, but uh, though, again, that's actually another really cool thing because it, just like as Christy was talking about uh, with the example of uh, Calabria, as you know, <laughs> Tolkien's work is so rich in these untold stories or you know only glimpsed stories um, and there are a bunch of these that we really want to to do so like for instance one of the one of the things that came up there are two uh, two love stories actually or sort of love stories both of which fall into this period and which would be really interesting to tell together and both of them as a really interesting setup for the Baron and Luthien story which is of course what comes next right after this period that we're doing now and those are the story of Aravel and Ale, right? Which is really interesting. Um, and the by far the darkest love story that Tolkien ever wrote. And uh, um, one, of, um, one of our Signum students, Kate Neville, gave a paper at a uh, conference, uh, the Vermont Tolkien Conference last year, year before last, um, which was a really cool paper where she was arguing, I thought really compellingly, that when you, when you really look at it, the, the, Eol and Aravel story is almost exactly like the mirror reverse of the Baron and Luthien story. Mm -hmm. It's like the Baron and Luthien story in this like, uh, you know, negative image mirror. Um, yeah. And it's really interesting. I mean, when you, so anyway, so thinking, really wanting to, to take some time with that, right? One of the arguments that uh, uh, Marie, uh, Marie uh, Prosser, who has been our primary uh, driving force uh, and sort of leader of our creative team, um, her primary argument was, look, if we do this in one season, Aravel's going to barely even move into Gondolin before she's sick of it and wants to leave. You know, we need to give, we, you know, give her something. We need to, get, to let the Gondolin story develop you know, to get that sense of like they have been sequestered for a really long time and, and Aravel is sick of it um, and not just make her look petty. Be like, oh, Gondolin, it's really nice, but you know, I want to I leave. Right? I, the risk of making her character look really shallow. The other love story is the one that's not in the Silmarillion at all. This is the other really fun thing, is that is uh, drawing on the later writings of Tolkien that never got integrated into the Silmarillion. And this is the story of Aignor and Andreth. Okay, so for those of you who have read Morgoth's Ring, volume 10 of the history of Middle-earth, um, may know the story of the Athrobeth of Finrod and Andreth which is this debate between Finrod Felagan and Endreth, this wise mortal woman, who are discussing, it's mostly a theological debate, but it's a much more deeply personal than a purely theological debate. It's a very non-theoretical theological debate, uh, which has a, a lot of relevance to them personally. Um, and it, by the way, one of the, that's probably my second favorite short piece Tolkien ever wrote. I absolutely love the, the, the Athrobeth. Um, and I uh, uh, can't recommend that. And even if you're not a History of Middle-earth person, um, find the Athrobeth of Finrod and, and Andreth and read it because it's, 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 it's awesome. What is revealed by the end of that discussion is that Andreth is in love with Aignor, the Noldor 
brother of Finrod. Um, and Ignor returns her love, but won't marry her. Um, like he chooses not. So like there is this reverse gender Baron and Luthien moment, which predates Baron and Luthien chronologically. Um, but the elf says no. Like he choose, he's you know he decides that like it would this would not be good this would not be right and now is not the time um, because it was right and of course in a sense he was right the Dagor Bragalock is about to happen and he dies in it in fact so there's like some sense of like his own foreknowledge of his own doom to come and also just the general fact that you know as Tolkien said elves don't like marry or have children in time of war. Um, which, of course, if you're immortal, makes sense, right? It's an inconvenient time, you know, family issues during wartime, right? Um, and if you're an elf, you can pick and choose, right? Which millennium in which you want to have your children, so why should you choose a, particular, a particularly, uh, uh, you know, awkward millennium? Uh, when anyway, so, uh, so you have tragic... Like, not unrequited, but the tragically requited and unfulfilled love story of Ignor and Andrath. And so for years, we've been like, we're totally doing that in yeah. the Silphill Project. Like, no question, we're going to integrate that. So that was one of the other arguments, is that Ignor and Andrath and Aeol and Arathel, both of those stories are going to need development in addition to the whole building Gondolin, building uh, uh, Nargothrond. And, oh, by the way, we also need to... Uh, we want to build on the dwarf stories, mm -hmm. right? We started some uh, some interesting, like, what exactly are the dwarves doing in Beleriand and how are they relating to everybody else kind of thinking in season three, which we kind of want to keep going in season yeah. four. So, anyway. So I th and I think... I've tentatively you know, agreed to the split, but... Right. And I think, like, and I think this is... It's, it's very apt, given your presentation this morning, some of the discussions about, you know, like, uh, you know, sort of, like, Compression for compression's sake. Yeah. Like, oh, you just got to cram. You know, we have this amount of material, and we have to cram it into this much uh, storytelling. So compress. And like, I think you know, the decision or, or well, you know, uh, assuming we make the decision to like split or or, or uh, spread out the storyline over seasons, um, uh, I think that, that that what we would be doing is we'd really be uh, enacting the principle of like tell good stories tell good story exactly like on, honestly whatever the consequences are if we can if we can tell if we can deliver those two love stories in a really interesting way that that fills out some of the dark corners the corners that aren't illuminated in the actual text uh that actually would be really exciting like yeah. um and i think that's a nice idea and i think that's totally you know both from a both from a like discussion standpoint like you know just having the opportunity to discuss these in detail but also from the standpoint of like imagining something that would be delivered on screen. I mean, certainly that oftentimes those are the best stories to, 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 to um, experience in, you know, film adaptations are the, these character-driven love stories. So, and I think these would be, and everyone loves a tragic love story. So yeah, these are two of the most tragic, so. Yeah, and, and weird, like trying to do something with Aeol and Arthel, right? Just to, to make it not look super like creepy. He, like he kidnapped her? Because he kind of does, <laughs> yeah, right? And yet... Because he kidnapped her. That, yeah, that, that, that one sentence in Silmarillion where the narrator says, it is not said that Aravel was entirely unwilling at the beginning. <laughs> it's like, wow. 
let's unpack entirely unwilling. <laughs> Whew, like there's a lot of story there and a lot of ways we can do that, right? That's you true. Know, it's like we could go like full like Stockholm Syndrome with her or we could do some kind of, I mean, my own inclination is more like have there be some kind of attraction or interest on her part and yet like have her, but yet nevertheless he is like, you know, enforcing his will upon her. So like he's, he's enslaving her. He's, he's doing the Tolkien magic thing, right? The like, I am exerting my will upon you and attempting to dominate you with my will, which is totally sketchy. And yet have her be like, you are doing this and I find that sketchy. And yet like, I also, I am choosing of my own will to stay. And yet I also know that my will is not free and to have her be kind of torn in these ways and see her, not, not just, because I, I don't want her just to be a victim. Ardell is one of the really strong female characters in one sense of defining strength. Mm -hmm. Strong in the sense of willing to go out and do stuff, right? Willing to stand up and say, no, I'm gonna, you know, do what I wanna do and not what I'm told to do. Um, not that I think that's Tolkien's ideal of strength for men or women, but nevertheless, like, you know, she's, she's plucky. She's certainly plucky, right? And so just to have her be like, I am entranced and ensorcelled and held against my will, and I am the damsel in distress who must languish until my son grows up in order to, and then he can rescue me. Yeah. It's totally not how yeah. I want to do that story. I think it doesn't do justice. This is quite yeah. a those character. This is quite a time uh, in society to be trying to it tell is. that story we, well. We too. talked about that last week. There's a, a lot bit. of yeah. There, there's clearly a lot of really bad ways we could do it too. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, yeah, Stockholm no, we were... syndrome, the kidnap, the I'll stay together with you because of the kid. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Well, not to of... mention the whole like, uh, you know the, the you know. The whole like, hi, I am, you know, the man who is fixated upon you and I am going to like enforce my will upon you and keep you against your will. Like there's like so many ways in which that could be horrible yeah. <laughs> and should be horrible also. But I mean, it's yeah. So like how to kind of navigate to make it horrible without just being a parody, without it being too simplistic and trying yeah. to, I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting. To yeah. do the yeah. yeah, lots of fun conversations. A little bit of a minefield. It is. It is. Yeah, which I kind of relish a little bit uh, because it's going to be fun to discuss. That's true. It is a lot more interesting than it's a minefield. Yes. There was a question. I, I just wanted to ask, and I wasn't sure what the timelines are in the book, but men come into Belirin during the siege, right? The, the second children are yes. and they, they migrate into Belirin. Correct. Part of because Correct. Now going to become part of that story, right? Yes. Not that season and the following season. Yeah, and the proposal. Yeah, they will. And the proposal for the. I keep calling it the split because I still think the whole thing is season four in my own parts. <laughs> but four A and four B. Four A and four B. Yes. Uh, basically, that that's, that's the split. The that basically, Finrod's solution. Uh, Finrod's finding of men would be the end of what would be the new season four. And season five would not focus exclusively on the men, but that would be the thing. So like the, um, the distribution of, of the story of, of Haleth, right? Talk about, we got lots yeah. of cool female characters. Yes. Andreth is a super strong female character. Uh, uh, Aravel is a really interesting female character. Um, and we get Haleth. Right, like the the woman Eowyn wanted to be when she grew yeah. up, you know, for crying out loud, right? Um, 
uh, that the role model that Eowyn can only look up to, you know, is is uh, is is uh, uh, Hollet. So, um, really cool female characters in this uh, uh, in this season or these seasons, excuse me, I guess I should say. But um, but yes, yeah. So that's um, we we we've done some so we did some talking about that, and that's another thing that's a little bit attractive about splitting it too is that being able to. I mean, one of the things. One of the things that I said in response, basically, to the whole question of should it be two seasons or one season was, really, it depends on how much we want to expand on that, right? The details that we have about what the men did in Valerian when they arrive are very few. We could easily do them in two episodes, easily. One episode on Haleth and how Haleth became the leader of her people. One episode on, like, the meeting of the men and, like, the, the disguised yeah. agent of Morgoth who tries to stir them up and stuff. And then you dispose of them in their different countries, and you're set, right? That could we could easily do that, or we could uh, really invest in invest that. in their stories a little bit more. Yeah, I'm not, not gonna lie, I I find the idea of, like I think I would much rather see Holland be a main character who's like recurring repeatedly. Yes, and, let's 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 tell the story of Holland in a season yeah. arc instead yeah. of just that sounds person. very exciting. Yeah. Uh, that's a character I think I'd want to spend a lot of time with. And I agree, and and it was it was pointed out that if we didn't extend the season into more than one season, we would be shoving Haleth into a corner because the problem with these mortals is they just die like that. <laughs> so if we don't tell Haleth's story now. We're not going to get another chance. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But the elves, you, the elves, you can kind of keep them around. Yeah, yeah, we can we can postpone almost indefinitely the character development of some of these elves, but uh, you know the humans, it's not so easy. What did you guys decide to do with Galadriel's character? Ah, oh, that was man, a, oh man. <laughs> that was a big decision. So we did not choose Tolkien's later ideas, like where he totally wanted to differentiate. We did, we rolled with, I can't remember the categories that I made, which one, I think it was 2.0 that we decided yeah, on. Yeah, it was either two or three. No, two. it wasn't three. It wasn't three. Three, three is, three is the, the whole hog. Yeah. yeah, she goes off on her own boat. Which um, one was? Which one is the? Which which Galadriel is the most? Uh, I was gonna I was gonna say evil, but which one's the most complicated one? I think two. I think two. two. Is, yeah. I think we're I think not exactly that, but close to that. Yeah. One of the things that we're, we, that, we're leaning into yeah. Galad ambitious like. Yeah. Um, um, conquer new lands, Galadriel. Okay. We want to do problematic Galadriel, okay. yeah. but not, but not, but not, um, but not butchering the Teleri. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she, yeah. Was, she was not party to the not, right. She wasn't party to the conflict. She Fingolfin, doesn't she? she what? Just with the Fingolfin's. Um, yeah, those Fingolfin's troops are not innocent at the Kinslaying. So yeah, we 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 wanted, but I think she. I think we left her hands unstained. Yes, yeah, we. We, 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 it was a Galadriel at the Kinslang was a delicate dance. Yeah. <laughs> because what I, I wanted to have two things, two apparently contradictory things. I wanted, I, I, I agreed that we, there was a big uproar against, I think I proposed that I wanted to have her kill folks. I yes. wanted her to be guilty at the Kinslang. Uh, and there was an uprising. And <laughs> so I, can, I yielded. But, uh, but I, want, I wanted her to be. Guilty, not to be able to be like distant and saying like, well, yeah. I didn't have anything to do with Kinslang. Yeah. She did have something to do with Kinslang, okay. and like again, the people Fingolfin yeah. are you know in this kind of marginalized place, right? Finarfin was not there, right? He didn't fight. Fanor and his people started it. Fingolfin, they they fought, right? Yeah. They killed people at the Kinslang. 
They intervened. So we had Galadriel with the people intervening. The way that we ended up having it actually was Galadriel not having blood on her hands, but having blood splashed on her clothes, basically. She, she will emerge physically stained. Um, uh, and like, she was complicit in a, like, she, she didn't actually kill anybody, but she was ready to. Um, and it was literally like, at least on the point of decision. And then in the end, like she didn't do it, but, but it was close. Technicality. Yeah, yeah. She well, would totally, she would, uh, accessory. if she were just like a, if she had only even a mediocre yeah. defense attorney, she'd get off. And I, I'm trying to remember sort of what, what the complication there was, but I think it was, it was downstream consequences if she was, right. if she was proactively involved in murdering people. They're basically, there, there's no way she would have been allowed to stick around. Or have um, a ring of power, I think, was the issue, well, too. And it's, and, yeah, and because it's, like, her mom. You know what I mean? Like, it's her, they're her people. Yeah. And so, like, to, to have her cross that line, you know, to slay her mother's kin, um, we felt was, in the end, too much of a line for her to cross. Yeah. And yet... To, uh, the way that we set up the Kinsland was that was really fun. That was one of the that was, that was one, really fun. One of the most fun discussions we had um, was we equaled only by the the debate over the uh, biops, the biology of Middle Earth. Oh, the biology! Oh the my goodness! Oh the de- oh the Delore! Yeah, that. Okay, that's okay. That. yeah. Remind us to come back to the sleep of Yavanna. <laughs> <laughs> one of the most divisive discussions we've had in film film. But anyway, um, uh, the really illustrative in very interesting ways. But, um, but no, the, the, the kinsling was really cool because we wanted to, the way we wanted to conceive that was we wanted it to be understandable from every perspective, right? There's nobody, even Fanor, even, I didn't, I, I don't want even Fanor to emerge from this just looking like some kind of crazed, you know, evil person ready to bite the heads off babies without provocation, right? I mean, it's, it's like, you need at least to be able to understand, like, you can disapprove of what he did, right? But you need at least to understand why he did it, to have some kind of empathy for the temptation that drove him to make that call, even if you would quite like to think you would make a different call in his place, right? That's what I wanted for Fanor and for everyone, right? So, uh, so the way that we constructed it was we, we, we try to construct it in such a way so that it looked... It was like one of those situations that just escalated, kind of out of control, and from each point of view, it kind of it looked different, and and sort of you could sort of understand both sides, right? You know, so the way even with even with uh, we didn't have the Feanorians march down to the docks with their swords drawn and start hacking up folks, right? Um, we, and here we were following the text. They take the ships and just sail away with the ships, right? So we start. With the Fanorians just getting on the ships and starting to, to take, or attempting to take off with them. We were pointing out the fact that the Fanorians won't have the first idea how to sail a <laughs> ship, actually. So there would be some uh, inefficiencies in the departure of the fleet from the harbor. Um, and the, the, the Teleri objecting, right? No, don't. T- but of course, like, what are they going to do? Like, they would sort of start off with, like, stop. Or we're gonna keep asking you to stop, right? And then, but then, like, there comes a point, right, where they're like, okay, okay, no. Even though we've told you to stop, you're not stopping, right? We have to stop you, right? And they start it. Um, you know, that they're the ones who begin the violence, like non-lethally, 
right? It's like it starts with fisticuffs. And it's the Feanorians who then escalate it from fisticuffs to swords, which they have and the, and the Teleri don't, right? But again, now, you're the Feanorians, right? You're, you're being attacked, right? People are assaulting you on the ship. You're defending yourself. Um, and then there's the, there's Teleri archers. Um, so the, the, the way that the uh, harbor is described, right? There's this, this, this bridge, this arch above the, the, the exit to the harbor. So we have the, the Teleri with boats, right? We know they have boats. So we have archers up there on the edge and they're ready to shoot the Feanorians as they're coming out. And that's when Fingolfin enters. So Fingolfin and his host come in and what they see are the Teleri lining, the, ready to shoot, to murder the Feanorians as the Feanorians are, because by this time, the Feanor, all of the Teleri who have actually physically attacked the ships have been dealt with. Right? So all they see are the Feanorians going into a trap, which for all they know, and following Feanor's words in the previous episode, is a trap like or, orchestrated by the Valar. Right? This is the Valar attempting to stop them right? and trying to kill them all. And here's the Teleri serving as their instruments. And so seeing his people, Fingolfin, seeing his people, the people of Feanor, about to be attacked as far as he can see, you know, one-sidedly, unprovokedly, by the Teleri attacks, right, to prevent them from killing all of the Feanorians. And that's how, and Galadriel's with him. We had Galadriel with him. So we have Galadriel on the bridge, actually not far, and we, 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 we killed off Ayarman, didn't we? Yep. Yeah. Her mom uh, dies in the yep. Kinslay. Galadriel's mom. And her, her that's mom's what on the bridge. provokes her sort of, like, that, that's what, like, she's restrained until her mother is in danger. Yeah. Yeah, but we actually had Galadriel, like, charging with Fingolfin. Yeah. Like, she was ready to, to, to mix it up. Like she, she was appalled, right? Because like it, it like it's like a betrayal, as far as they can see, right? Um, but then, in the end, she stops, right, uh, and, and is appalled. Uh, and we had my favorite, one of my favorite sort of cinematic, you know, uh, moments from that, uh, uh, from that whole season, season three, is the, the scene at the very end of that of episode two of the Kinslaying episode when Fingolfin is on the center of the span of the bridge, uh, you know, with the blood of the Teleri on him, and Feanor is on the weed ship sailing underneath, and Fingolfin looks down. You know, he's got blood literally on his hands, and he looks down, and Feanor standing with his bloody sword on the ship is looking up at him and the two of them like their eyes meet as he as he comes and sails underneath uh the 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 bridge scene <laughs> um so anyway it's uh, thinking through this stuff but because this is the kind of thing like the description of the kinsling is like one paragraph yep. right right um but the, you know the kind of ways that we end up talking a lot when we when we when we do this in film film is like but this must have happened, right? Something like this yeah, must yeah. have happened. Like, yeah. it's, it doesn't make sense to just be like, have the Feanorians and the other Noldor just be like, we're going to butcher the Teleri because we enjoy it, you know? Yeah. And like, it's, no, like that wouldn't happen that way. Why would Fingolfin do this? Why would, they, yeah. How much do you think percentage wise or even looking ahead, are you going to be pulling from other uh, sources? Like you've already said, you're pulling from Morgoth's ring, you know, stuff like that. How much do you pull from other other writings and, and still, I mean, you're, you're called Silmarillion yeah. Seminar, yeah. but you're going to be pulling. So basically, we, 
Wantonly, yeah, <laughs> wantonly. That's exactly it. Um, Just whenever. Whatever. Well, like we've done this with. Uh, Bulldog, right? Yeah, Bulldog, absolutely. I just remember back in the beginning, you're trying to like devise the characters of the Valar. Are you going to look them at the Unfinished Tales Valar? Are you going to do these, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's tricky. Basically, we just kind of pick and choose okay. what we, we think is coolest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. exactly. Um, so, like, for instance, one change that we made totally, not, which, you know, would surprise Silmarillion fans, but it's, we didn't make it up. Um, we killed off one of the Sons of Feanor yes. uh, at the burning of the ships. Um, there's one of his later writings. He has uh, one of uh, Amrod, uh, one of the two twins, um, is burned alive in one of the ships when he burns the ships. Um, which, which, you know, so we were like, we think this story is cool. <laughs> so we are going to tell this version of the story. Um, but there are some other things that, like, you know, other, like the, what hit later versions of the Galadriel story. Where he really wanted to make Galadriel totally, he wanted to divorce Galadriel almost completely from the wrongdoing uh, in the first age. So he's like, she got her own boat to Middle Earth, right? She wasn't even involved. She, she's not even under the doom of the Noldor, kind of, you know. Yeah. Sort of. Um, that, and, that's an example where we're like, boring. boring. <laughs> yeah, no way. Yeah. Uh, we're not doing that. Evil uh, Galadriel, way more interesting. Because <laughs> we want, and again, this playing the long game, right? We are totally playing the long game in this in some film project. We are like, we want that moment yeah, when Galadriel does not take the ring, right? Yeah, that's we're oh man, we are playing like that moment is going to be so powerful because these people, these incredibly patient, wholly theoretical people who have been <laughs> watching our entirely theoretical show for twenty five seasons by that time, right? <laughs> Oh man, that's gonna mean so much. Right? Like, I mean, like Frodo is gonna be a bit part in that scene, right? I mean, it's not about it. It's about you know. So this this kind of glimpse that you get of what it means you know, when she says, "I pass the test. I shall diminish and go into the West." Oh man, like that's gonna be the climax of a of a long story, uh, and we want to we want to give that story full credit. But of course, you know, who's the primary hero? The one character. Whose story, uh, whose story arc reaches from the beginning of season one all the way to the very end of season 30 or whatever it is, the one single character whose long story unifies the entire thread of the story? Sauron. Sauron. Sauron is our longest game that we're playing the entire time. Yeah. The, the initial, the, one, of this, one of the major subplots of season one is the temptation of Myron. Uh, Morgoth's recruitment of Myron uh, to become his servant uh, is one of the things that, and his decision to kind of come over is one of the things that happens towards the end of season one. And then his like trying to find his place among like the, you know, the evil lowerarchy, right? Uh, in Morgoth's world in season two and three. Um, yeah, I think, I think, yeah. and I think like the, the idea with Myron is we don't want him to be recognizable. Yeah, like I mean, you know, it's virtually impossible. Like, like in reality, this wouldn't work. I guess, I guess you could imagine an entire generation of people who never read the books or didn't have access to Wikipedia, or friends, <laughs> or friends. Or, or, <laughs> <laughs> no information. The idea would be, yeah, if you could imagine someone like that, you would like that person to to watch this character and then be invested in this character of Myron as, as, a, as a person undergoing a fall and becoming a villain in their own right. And then at the end be like, 
oh shoot, that's Sauron. That's Sauron. Oh, exactly. Crap. It's like, and, it's, yeah, this and, and, shocking reveal. And not like figure that out at the end of season one, but figure that out when it's revealed on screen in yeah. season 34. You gotta have a what? A decoy Sauron. A decoy Sauron. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You know, and, and like that's the interesting thing about this yeah. this experience you're talking about, sort of the idea that like you could imagine if you've if you had if you watched 25 years of this show, yeah. it's like a soap opera, <laughs> and that's it. The, really the only thing that's even comparable that actually exists in the world today would be a yeah. soap opera. Be a soap opera. Seriously, no kidding. Yeah, um, but but you could imagine going through the exercise of actually watching that for a better part of quarter of, you know, hopefully we all get that one, a quarter of your life, um, and arriving at that point um, in Lothlorien, and 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 really you, you would be looking at it as like, you know, Frodo, this character who was just introduced like a season or two ago, and then Galadriel, this person you've been watching, you know, it's like Erica Kane on, uh, yeah. what call it? Yeah. all my children, you know, somebody <laughs> you've like watched on screen for like 20, 30 years or whatever, um, you, you can imagine like, that you, you're, you've, you've, lived with that character way longer. So yeah, it really would be, Frodo would be like the kind of the sideshow to that. That and, and the interesting thing is, that is the only, that's the closest we can get to like, you know you know that experience of reading the, the description of the, the third age in the, at the end of the sermon where you're like, you know, oh, this is the elf point of view about those events. Yeah. Events that, you know, for a lot of us like resonate, you know, like we, we feel closer to that text in the Silmarillion because it's told at the ground level and that's where we read it at. You know, and you have that fun moment where it's like, you know, Frodo and his servant, right. named Frodo the, alone with his servant. The, yeah, the, the guy who is yeah. almost universally agreed to be the actual hero of the story, right. <laughs> yeah. but is unnamed. It. Like the closest we could get to actually really experiencing that story in 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 that way, to resonate, to understanding that elf point of view about the story, would be this. Would right. be watching a TV adaptation of Silmarillion that lasted thirty years, and then arriving at Lord of the Rings, and and really feeling like, you know. This is this feels like a coda at the end of like this much more epic tale, and like you know here's this guy yeah Frodo whatever Galadriel all right yeah <laughs> that's right it is it's very interesting I hadn't really thought about it that way but that is like the that, that it's like a, it's like a way to very kind of access that elf point of view yeah yeah which is very Silmarillion yes like that's kind of yeah. one of the goals is to help people kind of enter into that in some ways. Um, and yeah, it, talk about a different angle on the Lord of the Rings, right? Come at it from the perspective where it looks to you like a brief final chapter, mm -hmm. you know, in a much, much longer. And the, and the difference in perspective, I mean, there's so many times, again, we are so about the long game in the film, film project, right? There's so many times when we're already setting things up, like we want to have this scene uh, look exactly like this moment in the Lord of the Rings, so that when we get there 20 years from now, <laughs> the visual echo, like you will remember. So like, in, in particular, you remember in, uh, in The Return of the King, when Theoden charges on the Pelennor field, right? And who's he compared to? Orame. <laughs> Which means we need an Orame scene, yeah. right? So <laughs> in, in, in episode 13 of season one, when Orame leads the charge in, we want like we need to have that set up the so grass that turns green. Uh -huh, green exactly. Green so that when Thaden comes in, you'll get the echo. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, he's just like Orame. <laughs> <laughs> because Orame came first, and you know it, right? Yeah. Which again is such an interesting yeah. way to experience that. You know, yeah. like when you actually read it, you're like, oh yeah, like Orame in this abstract notion. Like, yeah. I understand, <laughs> which the I metaphor. suppose is cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> a, I, I get it. That's a metaphor for reasons kind of godly. But yeah. imagine reading, uh, experiencing that scene where you. All, you've actually visually witnessed or 
Orame writing, mm. where um, your experience is, oh my gosh, he looks just like Orame in yeah, that moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, like on your own, like spontaneously, the simile comes to you, you know, like that's what we're going for. Um, yeah, no, it's, it is that this kind of perspective. I mean, of course, how long running the, the show is going to be has been a kind of sort of a running joke all the way through. Um, but, but it does really present some uh, very, very fascinating opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, um, anyway, yeah, there's, uh, so I, I mentioned before in re regard to season one, and thinking about faithfulness and making changes, right? Some of the changes that we've made. So there are two, we have time to talk about two things? Uh, I've been given a five minute warning. So, so I can talk exceptionally <laughs> briefly about two things. Probably we're gonna have to split it in two. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean I can, I can get 10 minutes? Or I can yes. get Remember, um, we're coming back at the end. So okay, can, that's okay. true. So two quick things. Just which both both of which sort of illustrate some of the the opportunities and challenges and again so these are some of the things which have also really contributed to expanding my own understanding of what it means to do adaptation. Morgoth, yep, in season one, right? If you've read the Silmarillion, you know Morgoth is Morgoth from page one, right? Maybe not page one. You can make an argument he's still in the process of falling in the Ainulindale, right? But when he arrives in Middle Earth, he arrives, you know, in wrath as that, you know, he's the Dark Lord from the moment he arrives in Middle Earth. And we decided we don't want to do that. We wanted the main plot, uh, the main story arc of season one to be the fall of Morgoth. Um, and the way in which that impacts the rest of the Valar, like the other Valar coming to grips with um, what it means to be fallen. What fall, they, they've not experienced this before, right? What fallen looks like. So we show the temptation of Morgoth. Um, this, these intermediary stages, when he has his own insidious plans, which are kind of twisted, but he's still fooling himself and kind of liking to believe that he's still the good guy, right? Then later stages, when he's at least trying to fool other people into thinking that he's still the good guy. And then to the final stages, where he is still in a sense convinced, of course, that he's in the right, um, but now has changed his mind about, uh, you know, uh, what, what is that Saruman line, right? Uh, uh, there would need be no change in our ends, only in our means, right? That's sort of where he kind of comes to in the end. And so thinking that through, thinking through what is, because that's a, it's a story which Tolkien kind of embeds in so much of his work, right? The fall of people, how good people with good intentions fall and become evildoers is a story that Tolkien is really good at, um, but he doesn't tell it yeah. about Morgoth. Mm. And we were like, Come really? on, man. Like, we need to start there, right? Even Sauron, I mean, right? Even Sauron, we don't really get it. I mean, we, we get kind of glimpses. or We get like a starting point and an end and point. And an end point, some references yeah. to some middle points. But yeah, but not too much. So yeah. both of those things. And, and, and of course, the way that we have those things going along together, uh, uh, Morgoth going first, Sauron following behind, but not too far behind. He's only really you know a couple steps behind uh, down the path. Um, but they don't proceed at the same paces, necessarily. Uh, Morgoth kind of goes over the cliff, 
especially at the Darkening of Valinor. Yeah. Uh, and in the beginning of season three, post-Darkening of Valinor, when he's now, uh, you know, the, the, the tyrant uh, in Angband with the Iron Crown and the Silmarils and the Burned Hand and everything, Morgoth is, is now... Well, he's Morgoth. We, yeah. we shift... We use the nomenclature, right? We, we cease to call him Melkor and we begin to call him Morgoth. And he, when he really sort of owns that, right? He really embodies that for the first time. In that's another three. thing in the in the published Silmarillion. That's another that transition Melkor yes. to Morgoth. Melkor that's another thing where it's just there's like a sentence that explains like, oh, this is what the elves call him. Yeah. But like you know, when when you actually set about trying to tell how that's going to work, then you actually get to see how he arrives at. Yeah. That Thinking about his identity and his own self-identification yeah. and, and understanding. You know, it's, that's interesting. Like, it's an interesting point. You know, the, uh, everyone here knows that one of the common um, critiques of Tolkien from people who are Tolkien fans is usually that like his world's black and white. Something that most folks in this room, I'm sure, probably agree is like not true, and we all reject that critique. Um, you know, but but the critique is the good guys are good, the bad guys are bad. Um, and there aren't many examples of great characters, which is wrong, there's plenty of them. But I think one kernel of truth in that is the sense that most of the bad guys, as they're portrayed in the book, are bad. Um, but as you point out, there actually is, if you, if you bother to look into them a little bit and think about them, there really is a, Tolkien really is good at telling false stories. It's just that, you know, people, especially modern readers, are looking to see that in the page. They want it as they're reading this, this you know, as a reading Lord of the Rings, they, they would like to see a villain who um, uh, falls uh, that way. Or doubts himself yeah, in some right. way. Or, um, yeah. but, but when you go through this exercise, like, well, we're going to try and fill out this history, it really does make, make you realize, no, actually has fantastic villains. Yeah. Um, it's just that most of the stories that he tells, at least the ones that are popularly read, are ones that are told at the point where that person has already become yeah. the has, has realized their full villain potential. Yes. Um, yes. But like, actually, like when you start thinking about how did how did um, uh, uh, how did Morgoth arrive there? How did Sauron arrive there? Actually, it's really fascinating. It's story. really fun. Yeah. So we found ourselves in this position right away in season one of making enormous and wholesale changes to the story. Because it's just, it is flat, it flatly contradicts the published Silmarillion, which plainly says that he's already like the evil tyrant from when he first enters the world. And, but at the same time, it's not like we're just saying, forget Tolkien's story, we're going off in a totally different direction. We were trying to do Tolkien's story in a different sense, right? So again, this is, you know, uh, one of the things which has been leading me over the last several years to be like, what does faithful mean, right? I would still call our, you know, film film adaptation a faithful adaptation because we're engaging with the story. We're thinking through Tolkien's ideas, um, even if we are, we've deviated from the actual plot, you know, that he, that he gave. Right. Um, it, it, similar in a sense to Jackson and the Hobbit. In some ways. In some ways. In some you ways. Know, you know, like, um, uh, at least in the sense that it's evident from the changes we're making, you know, like, sort of the irony is that in making changes, we're engaging with the text at a, far more deeply than we ever did before when we just read it and appreciated it for what it was, and that's the way it is. You know, even as we're saying, well, we're going to have to change that, it's not going to work, yeah. um, we're gaining a deeper understanding of the, of the actual text. Um, even as we say, like, well, we can do this better. <laughs> exactly. Both in big ways and small ways. Yes. You know, yeah. big ways as far as, like, major themes and thinking through things we haven't confronted to small details, which, as soon as you think about them, blossom into, like, the kinslaying, right? We get, I spent, we spent, like, three quarters of an episode 
on this one little digression. The question was really simple. What do we show the Teleri doing on screen? Like the, the, the surviving ones, not the ones who die. We know what they'll do. But like the survivors, like what does the aftermath of the kinslaying look like? Which led us to ask the question, which I had never asked in my entire life. Do elves mourn for their dead? And if they do, how and why? And as soon as I asked that question, like, so I mean, my, my immediate assumption, right, was like the Teleri, like, you know, weeping and wailing and kneeling over the corpses and like holding broken corpses, you know, why, why? And I'm like, wait, would they do that? Why would they do that? It's like, it's like, why would you move down the street to Mandos and come back before too long? Like, it's, but we didn't want to make it meaningless. You know, we can't be like, well, they're dead. That is a temporary inconvenience. <laughs> you know, like, it's got to mean something. But what does it mean? Yeah. Right? It, you know, so the, the challenges of thinking through, like, what is the eldest point of view on these things? Right? We can't just project human response. Because for humans, it's a big deal. Right? Death is a big deal. Right? That person's gone. And they're not coming back. And will you ever see them again? Who knows? Right? Not so with the elves. Right? She's going to be gone for, who knows, a few millennia, right? I'll miss her for a time, but then she'll come back. And so we begin to ask questions like, will they be the same? How are they affected by death? Is there a sense of loss? Is something lost? If so, what exactly? And again, how do you respond? When you're standing over the corpse of your dead loved one and you're an elf, how, how, how does that hit you? You know, what do you think? And, and I mean, we spent like an hour and a half talking about, I mean, there's just like one tiny thing. Um, and it was such a, it just kind of, it just kind of emerged, bizarre. you know, as we were like, oh, and the Tulare are going to be really upset. And I'm like, wait, <laughs> will they? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, some, some like tiny little details, which become huge things and other, like, you know, again, major things like thinking about uh, fall and these patterns of fall and these other bigger things. <laughs> Uh, before we adjourn uh, <coughs> this panel, for people that don't follow some film and want to see the art and listen to the music, Make where should they find it? Yeah, <laughs> they can. So the uh, the where the creative uh, force behind film film lives uh, is on our discussion forums. Uh, so if you go to uh, forums.signumuniversity.org, I believe I believe that right. is correct. Um, uh, we'll tweet it out. Yeah, um, <laughs> you can see all of the, the the, and that's where all of our signum forms are. And the, uh, the film film is is one of those. So you 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 click on film film, and it's divided by uh, by season, and then by particular creative threads. Some discuss some threads are devoted to uh, discussions of uh, uh, that is to say, complaining about the things that we've said. You know, yeah. in, in the podcast episodes. <laughs> Uh, that's where the revolts occur. Generally. There's also there's always like I think the casting. Oh, and the yeah casting, casting is discussions a, are really major, fun. Yeah, heated discussions about casting. <laughs> yeah. But again, it's kind of awkward because we've now cast almost every major actor and actress yeah, in Hollywood. Yeah, right now. Uh, there's yeah talk about unrestricted budgets. But are they um, going to age out of these roles? Or, uh, well, see, it is awkward. Oh boy, this is one of the big yeah, challenges, right? Like casting Galadriel, for instance, right? Who's going to look unchanged in 20 years is going to be tricky, right? Very, By then very it'll be tricky. all CGI. Yeah. Motion capture. Quite likely. Quite likely, yeah. Yeah, so it's, um, 
There are, there so are that means it opens up to anybody who's got uh, motion capture over. See, that was one of the arguments, arguments for, for dead actors right. in the first place. Yeah, exactly. That was, uh, that was it. Um, uh, especially yeah. when, yes, with Peter Cushing uh, 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 reprising his role posthumously was an inspiration to us, but that we got, we got shut down. Um, well, then we saw, then we saw CGI and Carrie Fisher reprising hers, and then we we're like, well, yeah, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, but anyway, so yes, that's where you can find the forms. The episodes are are on YouTube, um, and they're also. So if you go to uh, the the, I would recommend in general the Signum University YouTube channel is a good thing to subscribe to, um, because all of the episodes of all of the things are posted there pretty much. Um, a lot of people, I think, mostly because of course, like what I have been doing for years started as just a podcast. Most people who follow the stuff still like think iTunes first and everything else second. Um, in, a, in this Signum and Mythgard oh, you world. You can download podcasts, you can't download YouTube. I know, to listen I know. To, no, it's so. totally fine. But like, what I'm saying is our own distribution. That's where it's going to come first. Yeah, YouTube will be For first. Sure. That's yeah. like, we, we, we think of it as YouTube first and podcast second in many ways. Now. If you go to the, the uh, Mythgard website, you can subscribe to the GoToWebinar calendar invite so you know when we're recording live, you can join us live. Um, Post feedback and questions that we may answer or may ignore. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any, any given... you, guys look, you guys look at the forums pretty regularly. Yeah. You sift through the, the con yes. contributions there. Yeah, exactly. Yes. No, yep. those those discussions are That's very right. much a yep. part of what we do. Uh, we, you know, any given. So we record. In case you didn't know, we record every other Friday, um, seven a.m. Pacific time. So a little early for you and for me. I think the next one probably is this coming Friday, right? It's coming yeah. Friday. Um, from uh, yesterday. So any given Friday, I might live tweet it or I might forget. Sort of <laughs> goes. Um, so yeah, there's actually a lot of ways to be involved. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's funny, Dave. I almost corrected you. I'm like, no, it's a ten. Oh no, wait. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. We're in California, of course. It's a ten. Yes. Yep. Yep. So, all right. Let's uh, take our break. We have our last presentation, and then we'll have discussions. Yeah.